Well, you are what you eat, right? So Daryl should be very godly, I suppose. You also are not what you don't eat, right? That makes sense. You know, a, a, a bad diet is a bad deal. Poor nutrition, uh, besides initially anyway, it will bring tiredness and it will stress level and it will uh, impact your ability to work. But long term, uh, poor nutrition leads itself to all kinds of illnesses, just a few. Um, obesity, tooth decay, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, some cancers, depression, dizziness, headaches, lowered immunity, memory loss, heartburn, lack of sleep, loss of libido, liver damage, and on and on. As a matter of fact, the United States Department of Agriculture says that improper nutrition also is responsible for approximately $71 billion in unnecessary medical bills each year. A bad diet is a bad deal. It will hurt you. It will hurt you. So you might say, well, you know, I'm just going to choose to not eat. Okay, well, that's a good possibility. So for the first six hours after you've eaten, your body's fine with that because it's taking the glycogen and breaking it down into glucose. Glucose is like the gasoline for the cells of your body. You you need it to, to work. It's your energy. Your brain will take 25% of your glucose, but after about six hours, there's no more glycogen to break down, and so you start feeling hungry, and maybe start fearing, feeling irritable, because cognitively, you're, you're, uh, it's starting to be impaired. Well, if it doesn't get food, what happens is your body then goes after the fat cells, which is wonderful, because it does provide energy, but it doesn't provide glucose, and so your cognitive ability is still impaired. In time, what will happen is your, is your body will then go after your muscles and you will have muscle loss and bone loss. And so there is glucose with that, so your brain is happy, but the rest of your body starts to deteriorate. Often at this point, somebody a couple weeks into this will die simply because their immune system is so compromised it shuts down. So there's no way to fight. But if you're able to make it through that, then what happens is your, your body is now going after the organs of your body. Sooner or later, they shut down and death is imminent. A bad diet is a bad deal. It, it will affect every area of your life. Mood swings, you don't think that will affect you relationally? It brings about a cognitive impairment. That's going to affect your decisions that you make, your ability to negotiate throughout the storms of life. You're, you're coming to understand or, or the, the level of joy that you will be able to develop. It will affect your, your parenting, your being a good friend, your being a good spouse, your, your being a good employee. It's going to affect everything. A bad diet is a bad deal. And so let me ask you, Who is responsible for you having a good diet? Is it the fast food chains? No, probably not. The restaurants? No. Your grocer? No. The FDA? No, no, I don't think so. School cafeteria planning person? No. You are responsible for your diet, correct? You are responsible. Now, as physically, so spiritually, a bad diet is a bad deal. It will uh, shut you down spiritually. 
Ultimately, you will die spiritually, but you'll never be who you could have been. You'll never know your God as well as you could have known him. You'll, know, you'll never love. You think we just love because I choose to? Well, are you able to love? He makes us able to love as we get to know him. Your ability for your relationships, your decisions, your peace in this life is directly dependent on how well you eat. So a bad diet spiritually is a bad deal. This is why we decided to claim... 2016, the year of the Bible, and Eat This Book campaign starts off. We're two weeks into it. I hope you are you're doing okay with your reading. But here's the deal. Even if you're not, don't be thinking, oh, I'm already behind. I might as well just forget it now. You know, the goal is not necessarily to get through every word of the Bible as much as the goal is to develop habit of being in God's word every day. So let's just say you haven't done anything up to this point. Pick up a Bible reading program at the uh, information desk and just start today. Don't worry about going back and catching up. Just start wherever it is today and move forward. You can do that. Now let me mention just a couple of things that, that will help as we're, we're reading through God's word. Hopefully it coordinates with what we're uh, preaching on Sunday morning because we're going to be going from Genesis to Revelation all year. Different pockets here and there that we're going to be branching off with other things. But generally speaking, that's true. But a couple of things that I think will be helpful. If you go to our webpage, if you go, take a notes, take this one down. Because if you go to our webpage, you click on the big Eat This Book icon, it will take you to our Eat This Book page. And on that page is a video we call the Bible in five. Five minutes video that will uh, collaborate with what we're reading that week. Now here's the deal. Video is done by a hipster young guy who is a Hebrew guru. Really cool. You will enjoy it. It is uh, refreshing, but it definitely spells out what we're reading that week. Go to our webpage, Bible in five, check that out. Also, uh, if you notice in your bulletin, there was the tear-off section. You can still... uh, Commit to it today and say, I, I'm in, man. I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to do everything I can. And I want to do that. You can check. I want to be a part of the Eat This Book deal. I think it's bottom right. Tomorrow, what we'll do is we'll randomly pull five of those out and uh, award ESV study Bibles to those folk. Now, here's the deal. Most of us will not get an ESV study Bible. Okay, I got that down. Now, there's no reason to quit, okay? But you can go to Amazon or wherever else. I would encourage you to do that because the notes in that study Bible are phenomenal. Very helpful as we're reading through. Let me say this as well. This is all preliminary stuff. Let me say this as well. We're going to be doing, as we go through the series, every once in a while we'll be throwing out an uh, interpretive issue with scripture or a principle for how to, how to read. But I'm going to throw one out today that I think will be very helpful. And that's, to, as we read God's word, we've got to understand this. The Bible was not written to me. The Bible was not written to you. It was written for you. But it was not written to you. It was written to generations ago to a people who lived a long time back. We got to keep in mind the Bible belonged to them before it was us. It was written to them, their culture. Reading scripture is a cross-cultural experience. It is. You're reading different culture. Now, if you know anything of new cultures, let me tell you an immature way to face a new culture. An immature way is to say, this is so stupid. I don't understand this. This is dopey. This is crazy. I can't believe they do it this way. This is awful. I can't. This is all terrible. It makes no sense. I'm done with it. Very immature way to approach a new culture. When you come across a new culture, you approach it with humility, with patience, and with a desire to learn. 
we're going to be hitting a radically new culture throughout Scripture, several new cultures as we read through the Bible. And as we do, we need to have the uh, mature perspective. Okay, now this morning what we're doing is we are starting in Genesis. If you have your Bibles, it's a good place to start when you look at a book, right? The very beginning. So if you have your Bibles, turn me to Genesis chapter 1. Now here's the deal, y'all. Because we missed last week, then what, what has to happen today is I've got to preach two sermons. In one short, so I'm not going to preach twice as long, so don't worry about that, okay? But I will speak twice as fast. So you've got to be, get those notes down. Now, here's the deal with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. This is really, 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 really important. Uh, like I say, I might speak quick, but please force yourself to stay with me because it's so, so critical. Often in a literary piece, a book, they have a prologue, right? The prologue is not chapter one. Chapter one is when the, where the story starts, but the prologue kind of gives you the historical or cultural information you need, so when the story starts, you're all ready to go. The first 11 chapters of the Bible are a prologue to the Bible. The story starts in chapter 12. The first 11 chapters are a prologue. Now, let me show you why. Uh, first 11 chapters start with the creation of the universe, figure a dig. It ends... About 2500 BC. So I think by it doesn't matter your, 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 your calculations here on this one because all of us would say the first 11 chapters of Genesis cover thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Easily, right? But it's interesting that there's only a few random stories in those first 11 chapters. Cover thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but only a few stories. Here's the question. Why did God put those stories in there that are in there? They seem like they're random. They seem like they have no connection. They're just kind of fun. Some of the most famous stories in the Bible. Why are they there? I'll say this. Every story was chosen. I mean, you know a lot of other stuff happened in the history of the world. The thousand, but only a few stories. There is a line that runs through those stories. There's a message that God is trying to tell you and I. That if we don't get it. Then, then chapter 12 on isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. You might be able to read it with your discipline and all that stuff, but it's not going to make much sense. Those first 11 chapters of Genesis set down a, a Christian, a biblical worldview. A worldview is how you view life. It's the glasses that everyone wears glasses. It's the glasses that you wear to view life. A biblical worldview. If you don't understand what God is seeking to say in those first 11 chapters of Genesis... You're setting yourself up for all kinds, all kinds of stuff. So our goal this morning, we're going to do a 30,000 takeover, a lot of stuff. We could easily, this first 11 chapters could be a year-long series in and of itself. But, but we're given the big picture. The question we want to ask, answer is, why did God include these stories that he included? How does this impact me? We want to get on the biblical worldview glasses. So what we're going to do, what I'm going to do is give you seven snapshots for these first 11 chapters. If you can get these snapshots down, and they're really not that complicated, you will understand as the story kicks in in chapter 12, it's going to make a world of difference for you all the way to the, the end. So Genesis chapter 1. Let's start. First snapshot is creation. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I think, would you not agree with me, this is the most famous verse in the Bible other than maybe John 3.16. Everyone, does, everyone knows this verse. Notice a couple things about this, though. Real important. The author does not try to prove God's existence. Because partially it's not written 
to us, it's written for us. The folk way back when that he wrote it to had no question that there was God, there were gods, that wasn't an issue for them. Uh, This is a Western kind of thing that we we struggle with. Also, if you go to the Library of Congress and you check out all the material written, all the books written that deal with the, the beginning of the cosmos, how many books do you think you might find? Three or four? I mean, there are gazillions of books. Books, 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 books all kind of journal articles all over the place. But when God talks about creation, he gives us two very short chapters about it. What is it that God's trying to get across? You know, one of the things that bothers me just a little bit is when I hear a uh, very secular person say, you Christians really don't care about this planet. You know, kind of green, green sort of guy. You Christians don't care about this planet because you believe it's going to blow up one day and you're just concerned with the souls of people and you really don't care about it. I struggle with that because if you follow through the philosophy of atheistic evolution, one day there was nothing and then it kind of blew up into something. I'm still not sure how that happened, but it blew up into something. And, and then one day the sun's going to go out and it's all going to go away and everything's going to be done, and no one's going to know we were here, nor care we were here. We are here by an accident, and we have zero purpose in life, zero meaning in life. There's no, really nothing matters because it will all be gone. We came with an accident, we'll leave in an accident. How can such a philosophy, I wonder, have any true commitment to this planet? But yet, as Christians, we believe God created this place. And if you follow the text, he gave you an eye, stewardship of it. We've got to, we'll stand before him and how we stewarded the planet as well. Don't want to necessarily it's worship the planet, but there, there's a stewardship issue that he's called us to. So, so snapshot one, God created, there's creation. Snapshot two, there's a special creation. You know, I can imagine as God is creating, the angels are kind of watching him create. And they're kind of, you know, makes the stars and the universe, wow, this is kind of cool. And then they get this little planet and they get a little, a little closer because it's so small. But he starts making stuff on it and they're like, whoa, check out the giraffe, that's kind of wild. Hey God, can you make something with stripes? Well, sure, not a problem. Whoa, how about spots? Yeah, he did that. And they're just getting, they're loving this. And then, then God kind of rolls up his sleeves and says, y'all ain't seen nothing yet. Just watch, this is my magnus opum. This is, this is my grand finale, just watch this. And he makes Man and woman. And I can imagine the angels stand there going, um, you know, it's not as big and powerful as the stars. And, you know, it's not as like majestic like the giant sequoias. And it's not even as intelligent as the dolphin. And it's just kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're there. And, oh, good job. Good job. Maybe God's getting tired. Good job, God. That's all right. But then, then, God, God, God does this. God walks up to Adam and Eve and he breathes part of himself into them. And suddenly they begin to radiate as God. None of the other animals. Look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. In our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says that when God made man, God breathed breath into man, and so the man became a living being. I used to think that what that meant is man was kind of like there, and then God kind of breathed oxygen, and so suddenly the man could breathe. 
But all the rest of the animals are breathing. Doesn't say that God did that. What does this mean? It means God put part of himself. It was created in God's image. And it doesn't mean that God has a body that we kind of look the way God looks. John 4 lets us know God does not have a body. It's whatever else that means being created in his image. It means that we are destined for a relationship with God. We are able to have a relationship with God. We reflect in a sense. We are little gods. So the angels, how did these guys write? This is an incredible thing. Special creation. Now, now follow that significance for a moment. Our importance in life is not dependent. It's not dependent. Regardless of what the world would say, it's not dependent on our IQ. It's not dependent on our ability to perform. It's not a, a, dependent on our beauty. It's not dependent on our, how big our car is or how, how nice the, the home is or, or, or how big our office is or the, the initials that we have after our name. That Our significance is, if this is true, and it is, high genius individual and an individual with severe Down syndrome Equal in God's eyes, just as majestic, just as glorious, just as significant, Power, powerful. There's a spe- you are a special creation, not because of what you do or don't do, but because of who you are. Special, special. Cre- you're not pond scum gone, gone berserk. But, third snapshot, it's the fall. I mean, you say, well, how come it didn't... Is it that way today? Because it sure doesn't look that way. No. Chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Or you might not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice Satan's strategy, because the same strategy he uses on us. Comes to Eve, and Eve, you're looking good today, you know. And Eve says, oh, of course I am, I'm perfect. He said, no, no, Eve, I mean, mean, yeah, you're nice and all. But you're not God, Eve. You, you, you could be, but you're not. Now, Eve, why do you think God says you can have all this paltry fruit all around the, the, the peripheral of the garden, but the one in the center, don't you think the center is the most important and most significant? And Just look at it. It doesn't look so good. Why do you think God said no? I mean, why would he say no? This looks like the best stuff. Why do you think he would say no? So Eve looks at the fruit. And according to the text... It says that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The idea was, uh, they, when we sin, it's not because we don't know God's commands. Most usually, we know them. It's because the thing he said no to looks so good. Doesn't I mean, I know I'm not supposed to lie, you know, but this is going to get me out of a lot of trouble, boy. This is going to protect me, and this, this is going to be the deal. This is what it's going to be all about. 
certainly. I know I shouldn't go out with him or her, but it looks so good, and this is going to make me so popular, and this is going to make me uh, feel so good, and this is going to bring significance and bring fun, and why would God say I can't do the one thing that's going to help me gain? What is he all about? That's what Satan is whispering in Eve's ear. And so they, they go for it. In verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God is going to banish these guys from the garden. But look at the, what happened. You know what die means when God says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan says, you shall not surely die. You know, die in Hebrew means separation. And that, that's what the word means. And so what God is saying is he's saying the garden, which was a literal garden, I believe it was a literal garden, um, but it's, don't miss what it represents at the same time. It represents life perfect, the way it's supposed to be. Life complete with God. There was no fear of God before the fall. Life perfect with man and, and woman. There was no communication breakdown or relational mess-ups between, before the fall. It was mankind perfect in his relationship with nature. There's no weeds or there's no tsunamis before the fall. Mankind's relationship perfect with himself. There's no guilt. There's no confusion before the fall. It's perfect. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's the way God created it to be. But now, man's hiding from God. He's afraid of, of God. I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm into who God is. Man and, they, Adam and Eve get out, they start talking about each other. They start blaming each other, and all the relational stuff happens. And now God says, what you're going to do is you guys are out of the garden, and you're going to have to, life is now all about survival. And you've got to fight weeds, and you've got to fight viruses, and you got to... And if you think about our lives, so much of them is just about survival. We've got doctors, and we've got therapists, and we've got immunizations, and we've got bomb shelters, and we've got all the stuff we think we need to survive. Well, you didn't have any of that before the fall. How much life could you be doing? So these guys are banished from the garden. And this is life outside the garden. This is the answer to the world's problems. How come things are so bad? Well, they weren't initially... But because mankind chose what he chose, we are outside the garden. You live outside the garden. I live outside the garden. We want to be back in. We wish life could be the way it's supposed to be. Something called the wild in our heart says, yeah, that's what we're supposed to be about. But we don't see it because we're outside the garden. That's that's the fall. That's the third snapshot. And you'd think, when you think that, that... Adam and Eve, they're outside now, the the garden. There's a gate around the garden. According to the text, there's one way in, and God has got a big angel there, bouncer-type angel, and with a flaming sword, God has created the first weapon, and the angel's supposed to protect. No one can get in. You'd think that Adam's boys playing one day, whatever, they they look past the angel, and they look into the garden, and it's like, wow, check it out. Wow, look in there. And they might even say, Dad, did you see in there? He says, yeah, I know. We used to live in there. Well, why did you move? Well, it's not that simple. Um, You guys, when we were in there, life was phenomenal. Your mom and I never fought. And everything was was perfect. And we walked with God every single day. I mean, it was just, we weren't, no fear. It was incredible. But then God told us one thing. He didn't give us a bunch of rules. He gave us one prohibition. And we blew it. And, and, and he told us on the front end, 
If you, if you disobey me, it's going to result in blowing up separation, death. And we didn't believe him. So I'm just telling you guys, please don't, don't, don't sin because it's always a bad deal. Sin always comes with judgment. You'd think, right? They, they Cain and Abel would be saying, we're never going to sin. Oh man, oh man, we are not. If this is what it takes, this is what it does, we're not going to sin. We're not. That's what you think. Chapter 4, sin passes to the family. One day Cain and Abel come to offer their sacrifices to God. And God accepts Abel's sacrifice, doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice. Most probably a heart issue. And uh, uh, God tells them both that. Well, Cain gets a little ticked off. It's like, yeah, I suppose yeah, Abel is God's favorite, just like his mom and dad's favorite, and starts getting jealous and, and angry, and he always gets the break, and everyone thinks he's so good, and he's so special, he's a good issue. Well, they don't really know him like I know him, and so he gets kind of angry. And so God comes in Genesis 4, 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, not be, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, look at the way he talks about sin here. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It's almost as if sin is taking on a life of its own. It desires to have you. It's not, it's not just you making a simple decision. There's, there's, it's a little bit bigger than that. Now, I would think that if God came to me personally and said, Harris, you're about to do something stupid, don't do it. I'm just telling you, it's going to be a bad deal if you do it. I would think that I would obey, probably not, because the very next text, what happens is Cain listens to God, but then he says, hey, Abel, let's go out in the field and and play. We get out in the field, and premeditative murder transpires as Cain kills his brother Abel. And God comes. And he takes Cain and he banishes Cain. Cain takes his, his, his uh, wife who was his sister and they, 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 maybe any kids they have and they're gone. And they banish him because sin separates. That's what God said. It's going to separate. And so, so Cain and his family are gone. And you can imagine that night at the dinner table with Adam and Eve, right? And they got at least two empty chairs. Cain, Cain and Abel's chairs are gone, are there, but they're not filled. And they know now that they didn't understand death maybe before, but they understand it now because Abel really is dead. That was the first death. They had to bury, bury him. Cain is, is now gone. They'll never see him again. And you would think that Adam and Eve would say, please, people, don't sin. Look what it does. It blows up. It separates. It's always judgment involved. Just like God said, please don't sin. And you think that the rest of the family would say, we're never sinning again, ever. And you would think that night, wherever Cain is camping out, that his, his kids might say, Dad, this is like the camp out and all, but can we go back home and see Grandma and Grandpa and the cousins? And he would have to tell them, no, you'll never see them ever again. If you follow the text, fear enters Cain's heart. It's a natural consequence of, of sin, of fear. And you think they would say, well, why are we out here again? Well, because I did something stupid, boys, and so we're just... And you think they would say, well, we're never going to do anything like that, ever. Because we don't want our families, dysfunctional families, blown up apart because of sin. We, we don't want that to happen to us. You think they would say that, right? I would think that that would be so. But chapter 6, next snapshot. Sin spreads to the world. Story of Noah and the ark. You know the story of Noah and the ark. But look what it says in verse Five, start in verse 5 of chapter 6. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, 
and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You see all the superlatives there. It's kind of wild. How great man's wickedness and that every inclination of his thoughts only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. And the Lord said, by the way, God is not a God like the force in Star Wars. He feels pain. He's personal. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I had made them. Next verse would be, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So you know the story. The ark and the animals come in. Um, you've, Noah's ark is a pretty, pretty famous story, right? We've got Noah's ark toys and Noah's ark pajamas and Noah's ark wallpaper and Noah's ark stuff on our kids' cribs and all that stuff. And I'm not dissing that. Uh, but would you have pajamas for your child that have depictions of Auschwitz on it, you know, or, or wallpaper that has symbols of torture? Noah's Ark is not a kid's story. There's principles here we should teach our children. But it's a very, very adult. This is one of the most horrific stories in the Bible. You can imagine, right, that Noah and his family get in the ark at the end. All the animals are in. Scripture says God closes the door. And I think God needed to close it. I, I don't know if Noah could have. Because as they're sitting there, I can only envision this, rain starts falling and maybe there's a knock on the door. Hey, no, no, no. <laughs> guess what? Guess what? It's raining out here, just like you said. Oh, it's foolish. Uh, sorry, our bad. Listen, we open the door and let us in. You can't, of course. And then as, as the rain starts coming, the water starts, the, the ark starts moving around a little bit. And the, you, hear the, you hear the banging. Hey, Noah, Noah, listen, listen, it's getting deep out here. And please, you don't have to let us in. But little Johnny, he's two, Noah. Come on, he's two. You like him. He's always like, please, will you just open the door and let him in? And they're listening to this. And they've got to be thinking, oh my goodness. Oh man. Sin is a bad deal. Judgment is a bad deal. Sin, if you sin, die. We are never, guys, we are never going to sin again. We are not sinning. Oh my goodness, if this is how it results. No, 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 no. But God had decided, I'm going to start all over again. And I'm going to take the most righteous person that ever was. And, and Satan is kind of out of the picture here. I don't know if God kind of separates it and holds it. But they're not blaming anything more on Satan. Satan's out of the picture. It's not an issue of these guys didn't understand what death is. They really understood. But God's starting all over. And so you would think, from this point on, life is going to be wonderful. It's going to be fine. Everything's great. But, it sounds like a broken record, doesn't it? Six snapshot, chapter nine. Sin spreads to the family. Again. The, the ark, a year later, ark lands, and everyone comes, comes on, on out. And then Noah, now we don't know how long this takes, but, but Noah was to get, got, got drunk, but, you know, you got to plant the vineyard, and it's got to grow, and the, the grapes, and all, you got to let stuff age or ferment, or whatever it is. So somewhere down the road, though, he gets drunk, and he goes into his tent naked, according to the text. And his son, Ham, follows him in. Now, the Bible doesn't give graphic detail what happens. Uh, presumably something sexual, him with his father, or even him with his, his, his mom, we don't, we don't know. But we know this, it was wrong, it was evil. He knew it was, and when he came out, he bragged about it. Guess what I did? Told those brothers, bragged about his, his sin. And so when Noah comes to, his boys tell him what their brother Ham did. According to chapter 10, what's going to happen is 
Ham is now banished because that's what sin does. Because sin separates. That's what God said. Sin blows things apart. It blew the family apart already. So they're, they're, Ham has got to go with his wife and kids. And again, you can imagine that night at the dinner table when Noah's sitting down with his family saying, Listen, we heard the screams. We know what judgment is about. Why do we keep doing this? Are you guys crazy? Stop it. No more sinning. We're done. You think they would all say, We're never going to sin again. Same thing that night with Ham and his family. Can we go back and see, see our cousins and say, No, you can't. We can Because sin separates and I did something stupid and I shouldn't have but I did and it's all done and, and, and life is ruined you think they would say well we're never going to sin again you would think that right but sin's got a life of its own it's almost like something you can't control it's taken over and so in chapter 11 you've got the story of the Tower of Babel and it's a fascinating story because it says that these, the whole world, they came together and they were building a city they were building a tower to the heavens this is an ancient ziggurat they were going to the reason why they were building it is they said so that we can have a name for ourselves. Same type of, of phrase that Eve said back in chapter, chapter 3 when, when, the, when she saw the fruit and it was good for making one wise so that she could build a name for herself. These guys are saying the same thing. We're building a tower to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. In other words, we're going to worship us. And so God comes and separates the people because sin separates, because that's what he said in the first part, is you, you will surely die, you will be separated. I'm just telling you, you want to blow apart the whole human race, go ahead and sin. Well, that's what, that's what goes on. And so you come to the end of chapter 11, and you know what? That's what you got. You got mankind trying over and over and over again and failing over and over and over again. You got God saying, I'm going to start all over and you guys could have blamed it on Satan the first time. I'm taking Satan out of it. You could have said to me, well, I didn't really understand what you're saying. I took that out of it. We're going to start all over. Still, they fall. They see judgment. They fall. They fall. They fall. It's human dilemma. That's where chapter 11 ends. And you go, this is not a good story. It's not a happy story. No, it's not. It's not. That's the prologue. It's not supposed to be a happy story. What you get out of these first 11 chapters, let's, let's recap for just a second. First thing you get is you get that there is a God, personal God. Again, the world's worldview says, no, we're just here by an accident. There, there is no God. It's just every man for himself. That's survival of the fittest one day. It's all going to be over. It really won't matter. Biblical worldview says, no, 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 no. There is a God who put us here. And he's a personal God. And he created us that we might know him, even though we might not experience that in this life. That's biblical worldview. Second thing we learn from this is, is we learn that you are a special creation. That again, it is not based on, on what I can do. The world's view, world's worldview says, no, it is based on how fast you are. We have all the, the uh, applause for those who are the fastest and the quickest and the brightest. And we will give all kinds of awards to them, saying obviously, that those are the people who are matter. Everyone else, ah, you really don't matter in this life. It's the world's worldview. But God, biblical worldview. No, no, no. You are significant. You've got to think about this when somehow someone comes across your path that you just want to judge or call names or think in your heart bad things about or they're so stupid or they're so foolish or who would ever wear their hair that way or dress that way or look that way or think about that or do those things. You are significant. They are significant, just as significant as you, no, no, no less, based on who they are, not on what they do. Really, really. boy, that's a, a message that the world needs. That's biblical worldview. Third thing, and that's this, that you are broken. You are broken, you are broken beyond, worse than you know. 
in major, major ways. You know, the world will say, well, no, the real problem here in the world, of course, is education. We have to educate people. See, they, they are so, act so bad because they just are not educated correctly. So we need to teach them. Or the, the world will say, well, no, the real issue is poverty. Oh, so much comes out of poverty. And if we just can fix poverty, that will solve everything. And listen, I'm, I'm all for education. I've, I've had some of it. And I'm all for alleviating poverty. I think that's a good thing. We have two compassion kids and a kid with Remember New. And we've got a missionary who's inner city of uh, Minneapolis. And we, we, we want to curb poverty. I'm there. But, but, if that's all we do, then we just have smarter sinners or more comfortable sinners but the problem is not external. The problem is internal. It's a heart issue. And Paul says it this way in, in Romans 1. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. No one's going to turn to God on their own without God moving in them. He says, all have turned away. They have become worthless. And there is no one who does good. This sounds like what God said about the world before the flood, right? Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they don't know. There is no fear of God before them. That's why later on in chapter 3, Paul's going to say, All have sinned. He's just saying what, what, what first 11 chapters of Genesis says. Unless you think it's just, he's just talking about other people, not himself. Chapter 7 of Romans Sometimes the sad thing is this ends up being your life verse. But chapter 7 of, of Romans. He says, I do not understand what I do. This is Apostle Paul. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me that's in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do. That this I keep on doing. He'll go on and say, who will deliver me from this wretched existence? That's Genesis 1 through 11. We try. Maybe we want. It's not even an issue of desire anymore. Or, or let's just really buckle down and make it work anymore. We can't. It's this, this, the stripes of the zebra. It's who we, we are. We, we, we fail over and over again. Now, what's going to happen in the Bible is suddenly chapter 12, God knocks on the door of one man and says, you know what, I've tried this, people, they've tried over and over again, fail, 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 but I've got a plan and I want you to help me out. The rest of the Bible is about this one man's family, Abraham, and God working out his plan. Now let me give you a spoiler, this is fantastic. Because first chapters of the Bible, mankind is in the garden, right? Perfect everything. It's the way life is supposed to be. Very last chapter of the Bible, guess where mankind is? He's in the garden. Everything is perfect the way it's supposed to be. It's all, all fixed. And the Bible is really about God getting us back in the garden. How did he get us in? What about the big angel with the sword? How did he do it? And how did that come about? And okay, I'm living outside the garden right now. How do I do it? That's the story of the Bible. So as we go through... This next year in our Bible reading, in our listening, uh, keeping in mind that with a biblical worldview, there, there is a God, uh, that we're a special creation, but we're fallen, we're out of the garden. And as the story starts next, next week, it's life uh, outside the garden, God's plan. Uh, aren't you grateful 
that God didn't leave us to ourselves. He's demonstrated his word that left to ourselves, no matter how intelligent we think we are, it's just going to be a big old mess. And so God's going to intervene. 